Today we'll be discussing how comedians come up with material, and we'll be discussing the relationship between laughter and health. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. I am Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment and question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic from medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be discussing how comedians come up with their material. We'll also be discussing laughter and how it can or cannot influence health. Big episode, dude. Big episode today. This is, you know, one could say that this is the penultimate. No, that's not. Penultimate means the final. It's not the final, no, but the, you no. know, you could. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate, just the ultimate. It's the ultimate in our episodes in the sense that our whole foundation is based on is laughter the best medicine? And we're actually diving into laughter being at least good medicine. Yeah, I mean, don't get your hopes up too, too much. Uh, yeah. I did peruse some of the literature. There's actually quite a bit of literature on it. So I perused a bit of it. But it's funny because it's also this is the origin of comedy kind of in your realm as well like how do you start with that kernel of an idea mm -hmm. you know and oh that sounds funny how do you turn that into a joke though right that's the question yeah i mean in the end it's not really up to you you can try and you can do the work but it is the final arbiter is always the audience well yeah i i try a lot and you know what my kids do roll the eyes <laughs> Yeah, they're a bad audience. Kids are not the way to go. That's what this that's what the problem with this pandemic has been. I'm surrounded by four children. Luckily, I have two younger boys who still think I'm kind of cool, but my humor has also gravitated towards 9-year-old and 6-year-old <laughs> humor. So this is going to be really bad when we come out of this thing. Anyway, we'll see how it all goes. Ali, like I was saying, I want to talk to you about how comedians come up with material. I was thinking about this when I was reading Jerry Seinfeld's book, Is This Anything? And mm. uh, this book came out in the fall, and it basically is like every single bit he's ever done, all collected. And he does it by decades, so the different decades he's been performing comedy. And it's basically all compiled into one thing because he writes his jokes on those yellow legal pads and he just yeah. has like and if you saw his netflix special which came out last year or the year before one scene is him just surrounded on a street by all these legal pads like all yeah. these yellow pieces of paper and and he keeps them all and he has them all filed away so he kind of was putting them all together but that's not the interesting part because i've heard almost all of his material before it's the stuff that didn't make it right like that's mm -hmm. a pretty funny idea but it's one that he never kind of moved into actually – he couldn't turn it into a joke basically, right? Right. And the other interesting part is that you had bought this book and told me about it. And then I bought it because I was teaching the comedy class starting in January. And then I wanted to talk to you about the book and you hadn't read it yet. Exactly. Three months later. That was pretty interesting. You have a to-do list of books like we all do. But yeah, it is – a really interesting insight into the mind. And as I always tell my students, you know, Jerry Seinfeld might not be the type of comedian that I gravitate toward. You know, he's not my one of my favorites, but his work and his dedication to his craft is undeniable. It is undeniably phenomenal. And so to see what he's put out and to see what also didn't make it, you look at the stuff that didn't make it and you're like, this is mm -hmm. pretty it's hilarious. Good. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that, that's how type A he is about his joke writing. He is yes. very, very methodical and the effort he puts into it. He's actually my favorite comedian. I don't know if we've mentioned that before on the show because that's the type of humor that I find funniest. And so for me looking at this, uh, I felt the same way as you. I'm like, wow, like this was your rejected pile? It was hilarious. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's almost like, oh, these are only A and A minus, mm -hmm. and you need to live on the A plus only. I, I did feel like that. Yeah. And there's many things that come up because you can see how he comes up with a joke and maybe he constructs it slightly differently when he's actually telling it in front of an audience and the way it was written was slightly different and, and you can kind of see how things progress over time. Or this joke was written in the 80s, but now when he tells it in the roaring 20s that we're in now, he constructs the joke differently than he did in the 80s. So why don't we just start at the beginning? Like, how do you 
come up with it? What's the kernel of a joke? Like, how does that work? Well, Jerry Seinfeld is actually a good starting point because his work ethic is such that he, many, many, many years ago, decades ago now, he was sitting on a bench, I think, uh, writing some jokes and watching some construction workers across the street in New York City. And he just had this moment, this sort of revelation that he's talked about where he saw these workers and he said, if these guys can get up every day mm-hmm. at five in the morning and do that work, that heavy demanding physical labor, then the least that I can do to have this job that I love and that I want to continue in, the least that I can do is commit every day to writing. Mm-hmm. And on paper, on paper and out of Jerry Seinfeld's mouth, that sounds amazing, but it is incredibly difficult mm-hmm. to do, particularly for somebody like myself. So, this will be disappointing to many people to hear this, but there are many ways of writing jokes. The way I do it often is just wait for something to come to me. And that's uh, that doesn't sound like a good work ethic, but it's worked for me so far. I have tried this Jerry Seinfeld, if we can, you know, I mean, I, a lot of comedians did it before him, but he's he sort of made it infamous, this idea of getting up and quote unquote, going to work, your work being writing jokes. Yeah, writers do that too. Like people who write to avoid writer's block, they say, just write something every day. It doesn't matter yeah. what it is. It could be garbage, but you know, you need to write something every day. Sure. And so, it's similar, right? Yeah, I was listening to Jake Tapper the other day who hosts two shows on CNN. He's also an author, fiction and nonfiction stuff. And he was saying, my advice to writers is 15 minutes a day. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think he didn't say it, but I know why he gives that advice because if you start writing within 15 minutes, you're like, well, this idea is not fully formed. Let me keep going. Let me keep Mm -hmm, writing. So, mm -hmm. just commit to 15 and the rest sort of starts to fall in place. So, he didn't say that, but I'm sure that's why he uh, he says that. And I I mean, I think that would be a good piece of advice for comedy writers too, just 15 minutes. But it has to be 15 minutes of writing. It can't be 15 minutes of pencil sharpening and picking your nose, right? right? You have to sort of be, there has to be some productivity there. I have tried that. It doesn't work. I had a good buddy when I started doing comedy. He would sit and write. I fell in love too much with the idea of like, oh, comedians, we can drink at work and we only work an hour a day. This is amazing. Maybe that was too much, I think. But my my way really and what has served me well, and it's just there's no guarantees with this way, but it's when I'm doing mindless, brainless activity, i.e. vacuuming, lawn mowing, showering, Mm -hmm. when my mind is completely free and clear, that's when stuff Mm. comes to me. And then I have to stop vacuuming and go, I need a pen. Where's my phone? I, you know, and I uh, hard in the shower. Like <laughs> you're writing yeah, it on exactly. the, shower, the glass <laughs> shower wall. Hopefully, this nobody like- wiped the shower wall. Nobody squeegee this. Yeah, yeah. I have to repeat it to myself over and over again. My wife's saying, "You're taking an awfully long shower." I'm making <laughs> memories for people here. But yeah, I found that to be a good way. I've also found it much less rewarding to write in my phone. Mm-hmm. I, I really enjoy the act of writing it on a piece of paper right. and I, I don't do that as much anymore, but I, I loved having joke books. So, as soon as I started comedy, in fact, four months before I started comedy, I had joke books. I had my own version of Is This Anything? And often those were not things, but I do enjoy that process of writing. Louis C.K. once said- A total loser creep, by the way. Let's all be Loser honest. creep. Loser creep Louis C.K., his body of work is is undeniable, obviously. He was a machine, a joke writing machine as well. He said something that I connected with so much, which is that once you write that joke down from your mind, so once it leaves your mind and goes onto a piece of paper, and from that paper comes in back into your mind and goes out of your mouth into a microphone, you have often ruined the joke. So, he said it's much better for him to keep it mm-hmm. in his mind and go right from mind to microphone. Mm-hmm. If I had the ability to do, if I had the memory and the retention to do that, I would 100% do that because I do agree with that. Now, once you've got it out on the mic and you maybe recorded that, now you can write it down and be like, okay, now I have this documented. That's mm-hmm. how that joke went. But I totally agree that sometimes from mind to paper to microphone, there is some distortion and you're like, you're often found saying, this is not 
the joke yeah, that I originally something. came up with. It. it definitely does. Well, it's funny, by the way, you mentioned about writing it down because Seinfeld in his TV show, his TV show is called Seinfeld, by the way. I don't know if you knew that. Okay. Okay. I'll look it up. <laughs> but he had this one where like, he used to keep it in real life and on the show, he would keep a legal pad by his bed. So if he woke up in the middle of the night with something funny, he'd write it down. So in the show, he yeah. did that. And then the next morning, it was like messy writing and all kind of jumbled words. He's like, well, what What was this? He's like, yeah. there was something. He knows that he was spent the whole episode trying to figure it out. He never did. I've done that twice. I've done that exact thing twice. You don't want to turn on the light because you wake up the person in the room or you wake yourself up too much. Mm -hmm. So you just sort of like lazily scribble it. Actually, not lazily script. In your mind, you're really like writing something <laughs> intelligent. And then you look at – that's happened twice to me. And I look at it and I'm like, oof, this is hieroglyphics, man. What is this? And so, you talk about how this process is. So, you you have this uh, kind of idea. You put it on paper, unlike some other comics, but you put it on paper. Then what happens? Then you take it to an open mic. That's the ideal situation. So, now you have – you know, anywhere from 20, sometimes five, but anywhere from like, let's say, ideally 20 people to 30 people in a small room, low expectations, small cover charge or no cover charge, come to see an open mic. I shouldn't say 20. 20 is so ideal. I mean, really, it could be anywhere from five up. I performed for three. And your kids were okay with being in the comedy <laughs> club that night? <laughs> they, were, they were not. My kids would have been better off than <laughs> those drunken chicken wing lovers. But it is, as I say, as much as comedians malign audiences sometimes, it's like they hold the power to tell you if this joke mm -hmm. works or not, right? Sometimes it's like, this is going to kill. And you're like, I've been doing this for years. I have faith. I know what a good joke is. And you go and you, you put it out there and you're like, nothing. And then you do a second open mic that same night. And you're like, oh, I know what I didn't do, right? I did the nothing. And then, you know, eventually, and some of us are more stubborn than others, eventually you just have to be like, it's not a joke. Thought okay. it was, thought I had something, so, but I don't. So, that's what I was going to ask about. So, sometimes you just throw in the garbage, this isn't happening, move on. No. Sometimes do you think like, oh, this actually might be a good joke if I was going to write a sketch because I know you've been sometimes working mm -hmm. on developing uh, sitcoms or things like that. Sure. You've been, you've been, so, do you ever like put it aside for that or like, oh, if I ever wrote a piece, you know, is this, the, this a writing joke for your book that's coming out next year? You know, would you, do you move these 100%. aside? Yeah. And actually, it is not smart to throw anything away in the garbage, mm -hmm. I've learned. Uh, like literal garbage should not be involved. It's just sort of turn the page in your writing book, put an X beside it, didn't work or come back to later because so much stuff can come back later. And I mean like years later, a joke that you've been working on can just something sparks and you go, oh my God, that's what was missing from that joke from years ago. Or you just sort of lose interest in a joke and telling it and later it gets a new life. I was just thinking about a joke I had and I, I don't know what it was that sparked some interest in that joke, but I literally have not told this joke in six years. And it was about no one will ever say in a plane, I'm sorry, is there a comedian in the mm -hmm. house? You know, when it, when somebody's having some, there's never going to be any critical emergency related need for a comedian. That's just never going to happen. And I have to come to terms with that as a comedian. Like no one's ever going to need, need me. And it was a big, long thing about act outs of somebody like, please, they just need a laugh. Maybe you've got a pun. You know, it was just mm -hmm. like somebody in dire need of something so they could go on living in need of something funny. But I just thought of that again recently. And that had gone to the far, far Reese's of, uh, of my mind. Reese's? Reese's Pieces? Recesses. Oh, Reese's Pieces. My, that would be good too, actually. <laughs> it had gone to the Reese's mm. Pieces of my mind. And I hadn't thought of it for years. So, those things, you know, often there's a way to give them new life. And to your point, yeah, absolutely. Something can work in a sketch that you really couldn't there's some imagery in your joke that you just can't get out into people's minds. But if you had two, three, four people acting it out mm -hmm. in a sketch or in a video or whatever, you could totally make it work. And the book, absolutely. There's mm -hmm. so much stuff that is, you know, sometimes in the written word, stuff is like moderately amusing and that's still pretty good in the written word. It doesn't have to have that killer mm -hmm. punchline and, you know, A plus joke. 
Well, I mean, you've talked about so many different things right there. One is Reese's Pieces. I just got to really think about that for a little bit. <laughs> I remember when they first came out, you know, E.T. ate those Reese's Pieces. But anyway, I'm oh, kind yes. of really... But Phone I, home, Asif. <laughs> what's that? Phone home. Phone home. Dial it in. So I think, yeah, I'll dial it back, actually. So, And then, of course, maybe we will find something in the second half of the show about laughter. Maybe there is something that you can do. To help those people on the plane, right? Okay. We might find okay. something. Spoiler, okay. Okay. we won't, but maybe we will. <laughs> Think about it. But uh, let's get back to, so what if the joke is moderately successful? You got a, you know, a couple of chuckles here. You're out there on stage. Couple, do you do like an, do you ever think, okay, well, maybe it's just the phrasing. Right? Maybe it's just the way you told the joke. So, do you do like A B testing, like a marketing company would do? Right? You know, let's let's try this ad on the internet, see how many clicks we get, or we try this ad with the blue font versus the red font, and see which one gets more. Do you do something like that? Do you go to one open mic and say it a different way? And you know, well, it's very funny that you said A B testing without ever thinking about A B testing. I used to mark A beside a joke and B oh. beside a joke. And the reason that I held on to the B jokes, it wasn't like a stubbornness, like I will make this a killer one day. Although sometimes that can happen, but I need B jokes in certain scenarios. For example, when I'm hosting a show, when I'm an MC and there's a lineup of let's say three, four, five comedians and one has extremely high energy and really kills at an incredible rate and moves, like literally speaks and moves at a, at a high pace, and they're being followed by somebody who's very low energy. Mm -hmm. Might still be very funny, but it's there's a mm -hmm, total mm -hmm. energy shift. Mm -hmm. The host serves as a palate cleanser. Mm -hmm. And a good host, I learned early on, has to be able to sort of sacrifice themselves in a way. Mm -hmm. So you then come in with a B joke, right? You come in with a joke, it takes the attention off what just happened. You're not trying to follow somebody who's phenomenal. You're just trying to get these people to remember that, hey guys, there's also a comedy that can sound like just like this. You know, you're basically mm -hmm. the palate cleanser and you're the sorbet. So the next person has a chance to succeed basically. And then with these jokes, whether it's an AB joke, you kind of mentioned this before, but do they come back, as you said, like you said, the one about health or not health, but, you know, a medical emergency on a plane. Mm. Do you have other examples of how they come back? Well, I do definitely feel like some jokes have a shelf life because you just don't believe in what you're saying mm -hmm. anymore. I used to have an opener where I used to say, uh, hey, everybody, I'm, uh, I'm half Pakistani, uh, half frightened to admit that I'm Pakistani. <laughs> now, that connected with the fact that it was 2006 to 2008, nine, maybe, you know, I was, 9-11 uh, was still a very much a thing and the fear of Muslims was a big thing as it, as it continues to be. But I changed as a person where I'm like, no, I don't want to be scared of being Pakistani. I don't, I was trying to pander to the audience and be like, hey, I'm one of the good ones. And I just came to terms with the fact that just me being a Pakistani Muslim on stage at all is an indication or should be to the most basic minds that, hey, you don't have to be scared of all Muslims. That's ridiculous. Look at this guy right here mm -hmm. and the series of jokes he's telling, his actual words don't have to be like, oh, guys, don't worry. I know I'm scared of me too. So I grew out of that way of thinking mm -hmm. within a few years of doing comedy. So that joke had no life. That was officially retired mm -hmm. until I started writing my book. And then it's mm. like I'm reflecting on these jokes as I talk about right, identity. Right. Yeah, the joke is part of the story. Of, the joke of is now part of the story and it's part of my, my history. It's on historical record at this point, but I could never bring that joke back to life. Well, a couple more questions. How specific are you with wording? Because we've talked about this before and I'm sure you have some examples. There are some comedians, some of your, your friends who uh, and colleagues that I've seen who it seems like they're improving, like they're just making this up on the spot, but you're like, no, 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 no. They knew exactly what they were saying and they paused at this specific time. They stumbled to find their words at this time. Everything is planned out. So can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. And I hate to bring up Louis C.K. twice in a podcast, but when I was, you know, a younger comedian, that was the first guy who I realized Oh, hold on. This is because he had that way about him and so many comedians do, which they make it look. And this becomes a problem sometimes too, you know, because then the audience looks at you 
as you're just effortlessly, casually saying whatever comes to mind, or so it seems. Mm -hmm. And then the audience is like, oh, I could do that. <laughs> and they don't have any respect for you as a performer because you're like, oh, you just came on and said some mm -hmm. words. Yeah, they were funny, but I can do that. I do that all the time. No, that is something that has been built, uh, written, built, crafted, developed, and practiced and rehearsed in front of audiences hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. And now it's on a special, right? Mm -hmm. that, that's, that's the goal, to make your comedy look like you just came up with something. That's why so many comedians have these jokes where they go, yeah, I was, uh, I was in the subway today. And, you know, no, you weren't in the subway today. You haven't taken the subway in four years. You haven't taken the subway since you thought of that joke. And when you thought of that joke, you weren't even in the subway then. But it's about connecting with the audience about something that just happened. And like, hey, yeah, you know what I just saw when I was coming here? Uh, I saw this homeless, um, you know, a, a Pakistani guy. You don't see that a lot. You've never seen that in your life. You're just trying to set up a joke. <laughs> so that's how comedy works. You have people connected to like, hey, you'll never believe what I just saw and this kind of stuff. But your question is about wording. And my buddy Dave Merhej, one of the funniest guys I know, this used to be a big thing. Like we would tour together. So we're in Montreal, Ottawa, Toronto, Windsor, London, and he would tell a joke and he would tell it differently over the seven nights of our little five-city tour. He would tell the joke differently over five shows. And I'd be like, buddy, you saw that that joke killed in Montreal when you told it this way. In Ottawa, you didn't even use that one line that really killed. And then in, in Windsor, you used that line, but then you kept talking after. So, I watched it and eventually he came to terms with that. But he was a guy who didn't like repeating himself. But if you don't like repeating yourself, this is not the industry for right. you. You absolutely have to, unless you are strictly an improviser, as a stand-up comic, you need to repeat, repeat, refine. And I always say this. So, I watched Dave Mahesh come to terms with this. And once he did, I mean, it was just literally off to the races with this mm -hmm. guy. I always say this to people who are reluctant to practice and rehearse and rehearse and repeat themselves. Your jokes should be so well-crafted that you should know it inside and out that you should know exactly where the pauses are, exactly where the laughs are. Someone should heckle you from the audience. You should be able to go deal with that heckler mid-joke, have everybody laugh at that heckler and your response, not laugh at that heckler, laugh at what you do with that sure, heckler. So. You should go back into your joke right where you left off, seamlessly finish it, get huge applause, mm -hmm. great acclaim. That takes work. That mm -hmm. takes tons mm -hmm. and tons of hours of work. And that's what comedy is. And what about sometimes when you see a comedian laugh at their own joke, like they're, they're kind of snickering or with their own joke, is that planned or, or is that genuine or does it just depend? I, I really, I'm really genuinely asking. I don't know. But. Yeah. I mean, I think it, there are some comedians who find themselves very, very funny and it's, it's a little bit distressing to watch uh, from me anyway, but sometimes that is a technique which is in the same space as Hey, I just saw something this morning. You guys know what I just saw on the way mm -hmm. here? Did you guys see it? You know, that kind of thing. It's that. It's that. It's like, hey, we're all hearing this for the first time together. So, you laugh at it. Right. You've laughed at this a thousand. This is part of your like, we're all in this together. Yeah. Don't think about the fact that I just did this same joke on the early show tonight. <laughs> Never mind on 700 other shows. Don't even think about that. I'm laughing. We're laughing, man. Together, so we're good, enjoying yeah. this joke for the first time. Now, sometimes you will see some comics who laugh on stage, but sometimes it's just because they're like, I can't believe this joke is getting this reaction or something happens in the audience. And sometimes you get carried away with the fun too. But when it's, and, and I have seen with some comedians, it's just kind of a nervous habit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But when I, the Dave I, Chappelle's of the world do it, it's so that, you know, we're all in on the joke together. Do you think, because that's the thing, I don't, I can't, we can't go into the minds of them. I thought Dave Chappelle does that because it's part of it. Like he's rehearsed that. That's part of his act. Dave Chappelle is more of a storyteller anyway, in terms of the way his comedy kind of goes. He's not mm -hmm. a one-liner kind of guy, but I don't know. I, I thought that was part of Dave's act. I don't, I really don't know. Well, he does a thing where he hits the mic on his leg. Yeah, because he's and laughing. And then sometimes yeah. they'll a little tour yeah, around, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, a couple yeah. of walks in a semicircle yeah, yeah, yeah. and comes back. Yeah. And, you know, I can't, I'm not in the mind of Dave Chappelle, but sometimes that's buying a comedian some time. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's adding to the joke because you're laughing that Dave mm -hmm. Chappelle is laughing mm -hmm. at this. But as a comedian myself, I'm like, 
Well, you know that joke. You knew you were going to tell that. This is not yeah. a surprise. I mean, you, part of this is it's like a magic trick, right? Like, yeah. you know, yeah, like exactly. even though we're pulling back the curtain a bit, we don't want to do it so much. But listen, when Dave Chappelle comes on our show, we can certainly ask him. I mean, that's probably going to happen. We really. will get into the mind of Dave Chappelle. Will that happen yeah. really relatively soon? So, one last question before we wrap up. What about, I don't know when we're ever going to talk about this, so we might as well talk about it now. What about when people come up to you and say, hey, 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 I got a great joke for you. And not even people coming up with a joke. That's not... If they came up to you with a fully crafted joke, that may be one thing. Yeah. But I'm talking about, you know what you should do a joke about? You know what you should do a joke about? Yeah. And they say, I don't know. You know. Oh. Yeah. Uh, McPizza. Remember McPizza? That's a joke. You should do a joke about that. Exactly. It's a very funny thing. Comedians are human beings at the end of the day. Some of us, I have a buddy, Nathan McIntosh. He will take zero suggestions from the He's a, a lunatic as well in his own right, but very, very funny and wants to stand alone on his own jokes. Mm -hmm. If he didn't think of it, he wants nothing to do with it. Mm -hmm. Even if it's amazing tag on a joke that already exists, if you just said this line, he's like, no, I'm not going to do it. Because that means my joke wasn't good enough to begin with. So, there's that level. And then there's other people who are just sponges, you know, like, yeah, 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 yeah. Tell me, tell me, tell me. Okay, okay, I'll work on that. (laughs) That's usually younger comics. I think the vast majority of comics are like me, suggestions come, we take maybe 5% of them in our mind because most of the suggestions are exactly what you just described. Like, hey, you should do, remember the McRib? You should add that. Okay, but what's the joke? I don't know. You're the comedian. Figure it out. I'm like, yeah, okay, well, I'm going to figure out a way of not talking to you ever again, idiot. But yeah, no, I have some, a lot of friends call, including yourself, Asif, and you have like some real meat on the bone. Like you will have sometimes a, a joke that's 80% there, mm-hmm. right? It's it's like so well thought out in your mind. And then sometimes I have to be like, oh, I already heard that joke from this comedian mm-hmm. just because I consume so much comedy. I'm like, I heard somebody do that. You're like, oh, you know, so then you were on the right track. It is a good joke. It's already in use somewhere. Or I'm like, okay, that is great. I have to figure out how to put my own spin on it. You know, I have to give it some context that connects with me. And then I've also been approached by people who are like, I'd like to write jokes for you. And personally, I'm not interested in that. Like, that's where I veer more to my friend Nathan's philosophy. Right. Like, if I can't come up with, I mean, and in joke, joke writing, you know, it's like musicians would laugh their butts off at this because they have songs written for them mm-hmm. all the time mm-hmm. and sing it as their own and then take all the accolades for that song. And that's just understood. That's part of the business. It's a little bit part of the, comedy business at some level, these very, very busy comedians, you know, Louis C.K., third reference, used to write for Chris Rock. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing that. I was like, what? Yeah, how is that Chris connect? Rock? Yeah. Has this guy writing his, what the? But yeah, to, if you have the money and you have the time to get somebody in to help you punch up stuff or give you ideas and, you know, have writing sessions with that person, I think that would be useful. Mm-hmm. I'm just not comfortable with that at this stage. And I think that's why some comedians think that Comedy is one of the purest forms of art because it comes from the mind of the comedian. Then it comes out through your own verbiage. Like, in other words, there's no, it's not writing, it's not filming, you know, it's directly out. It gets received by the ears of the audience and then you have the immediate feedback afterwards, right? So, I, I can understand why your friend does not want to interfere with that process because it's like we said, it's one of the purest forms of entertainment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's like, you're making yourself so vulnerable up there. I think some people would rather do it all on their own terms, right? Rather than like, ah, knew I shouldn't have paid 30 bucks for that stupid punchline or what? I don't know what the going rate is. I'm just throwing that out. But yeah, I expect to see uh, better jokes from you in the future, Asif. When you send them to me, please do your research. I thought that, I thought that we all agreed that I'm like a comedic genius. Wasn't that what the whole point of this was? I thought that's what the conclusion was, no? And scene. All right, Asif. So, from the perspective of comedians themselves, Mm -hmm. you know, as we've just suggested, you know, many comedians find their own comedy to be therapeutic. Now, many of them are incredibly depressed and neurotic as well, but there is therapy in this idea of 
controlling, creating, you know, being responsible for the happiness of others and in, you know, some of your own happiness at the same time. And, and as I said, it's a job where you can work very little. You can drink on the job. There's like a lot of joy around that for a lot of comedians. But let's flip this around. And at the risk of boring our listeners into literal death, what is the research behind the benefits of laughing? That's what I want to ask you about. So what's the big thing that you found in your in all this reading you've been doing? Well, there's a lot of I mean there's a lot of different areas like I kind of skim some of the literature and there's a lot of literature out there. Some of it's not the best or most strongest studies, but there's there's different things which suggest laughter can have different effects on the body. And so, you know, one example is with regards to pain tolerance. I'll just go through a couple of studies with you. One is uh, with regards to pain tolerance by releasing of opioids. So in our, we all know about opioids because of the opioid crisis. You can take morphine. You can take things like that. But our body has what are called endogenous opioids. And that's what causes us to feel pleasure. It causes us to, you know, relieve pain, you know, when we have pain mm -hmm. through the release of these endogenous opioids that are produced in our own body. So there's one study where they looked at, they used PET scanning to look at opioid release in the brain. And they uh, looked at, they took uh, 12 people and they watched laughter inducing comedy clips with their close friends. So it wasn't just them laughing, but they laughed with in a group of people. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't your comedy because they actually laughed. And then, <laughs> and then they did that for 30 minutes. And before they did a baseline scan, before they laughed again, they did it afterwards. And they saw increased opioid release in various areas of the brain. So mm -hmm. that definitely is concrete proof that opioid release occurs with laughter. Well, that helps explain why the doctor who did my vasectomy kept making jokes. He, that's uh, making sense. Oh, out to of make all of you this. to, to yeah. have you come to these. It actually annoyed me quite a bit. I was like, dude, don't, what if these jokes make me laugh? I could jiggle, you know, I, I shouldn't be jiggling. You might miss something anyway. But he was a big joker. That, yeah. that, so there's a couple other studies as well. One of them looked at what are called discomfort or pain thresholds. So they give someone like a noxious stimulus, and uh, you know whether it's like a pin or probably not something that would break the skin. And you're supposed to identify when it's uncomfortable. And mm. so they looked at they took about 40 people and they listened to a 20 minute long laughter inducing audio tape or a relaxation tape or just like a, a boring narrative tape or no tape. And they found that the discomfort thresholds in the people who listened to the laughter audio tape were higher. Yeah. So they could basically tolerate more pain before they said, ah, sure. this, this And it's not just distraction. It's really about the release of these various things in your body, that's, right? It's yeah, not just that's, about That's it. exactly what they think. I do remember seeing this video. It went viral video. I'm sure you saw it about this doctor, pediatrician with a small baby making this baby oh, right. yeah, yeah. laugh yeah. while and then gave this baby the needle and the baby had no idea because uh, I think she'd been giggling so much at his little Well, and movement. this is the idea and it's obviously more than that, right? The idea, especially the, the paper that talks about the endogenous opioids, it's not just for the actual person, but people talk about laughter in social relationships, right? And how that can increase social bonds by that. So maybe that's also part of it. The doctor, we make our jokes with the little kids. That's also part of the increasing the doctor-patient relationship. Sure, sure. Well, okay. So when you talk about relationships, and that makes me think about couples mm -hmm. and laughter and stuff like that. Is that important? I met some people who are pretty humorless in relationships. <laughs> Is there research about that? The importance of humor and laughter specifically in, in relationships? Well, there is. And, and you're right. It's so interesting, right? Because we all know those couples where one person in the couple is always cracking jokes and the other person is like stone-faced, doesn't laugh at all, especially yeah. at their partner jokes, right? Like they yeah. don't laugh at all. And yeah. so you're like, what? What's going on there? But okay, well, we know a couple of things. They say that if you just- A, they're getting a divorce if soon. You, and I'm just going to talk about heterosexual relationships only because that is what the literature has in it, which is obviously a bias. I mean, I, I'm being quite honest with you. They, obviously, we should do more research on non-heterosexual couples. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. one study showed that women laugh about 126% more than their male counterparts, whereas men- instigate laughter most, which I think is is often what you see in these heterosexual couples. Women rated a sense of humor as a top three trait for a potential 
mate. And uh, men tend to rate women who laugh a lot. In other words, people who laugh at their jokes higher than people who don't, right? And so this is all kind of like obvious. But one mm. interesting study I, I found was they looked at 71 heterosexual couples and the authors of the study video recorded the, the couples reminiscing about the first time they met. Okay. And they then analyzed the proportion of the conversation spent laughing, right? And then after the interview, they gave the couple questionnaires individually about their quality of the relationship, how close they felt, how supported they felt. And they were able to correlate that the couples that had more laughing in that interview had better relationships, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. again, correlation versus causation. On one hand, this is interesting. On one hand, you might say like, uh, okay, yeah. So these people like each other's company and laugh at each other's company. Probably they have a good relationship, you would hope, right? Sure, so sure. they didn't bicker and argue <laughs> talking about, the, and, you know, misremember the dad, the, the husband misremembering, you know, how they met. I paid for the meal. I paid for yeah, the meal. Exactly. So, uh, so I do find that it's very interesting that people who meet myself and my wife together will often ask my wife just because I am a touring, you know, stand-up comedian that it's a very common question for people to say to my wife, is he also funny at home or does oh, he save say that, that only for outside of the house? And I always wait with abated breath. I'm like, does she find me funny at home? Well, when people she meet doesn't. me and my wife, they're often like, so you married him, eh? Hmm. Yeah, I know. I say that every single time what? I see you guys together. What? Uh, anyway, so I mean, those are those are some examples. So, like relationships, the pain tolerance. Yeah, those, those are some examples. Okay. What about with stress? Mm -hmm. You know, it seems like that would be a connection. Like we, before some big, I don't know, test. I don't even know what mm -hmm. what stresses mm -hmm. people out mm -hmm. anymore, dude. Some kind of stress, or uh, you know, some kind of a test or exam or whatever. Would watching comedy because I was teaching the class and I was like, "This is the best." You guys get to watch comedy, but it didn't seem like it alleviated any of the stress of like nineteen and twenty year olds who are desperate to get high marks. You know, I was like, "This class must be great for you compared to your other classes." Yeah, I mean, obviously, but some of them were yeah. quite stressed. Obviously, because I don't know how much they can enjoy those clips because they're like, oh, "I'm going to be marked on this by my yeah. main professor." What part is this uh, important? Yeah, yeah. But yeah, actually, it's funny you mentioned the students because. There's actually a study that I read which looked at university students and they want to know whether stressful events and stress symptoms are lessened by intensity of daily laughter. So they followed some students, university students over time, and they gave them a smartphone app where they could record every day any stressful events that occurred. And there's also something called the daily laughter record, which is an actual test that has been well established and well studied that you used to record how much you laugh in a day. I didn't know that existed until I was doing some yeah. of this reading. And they okay. could do that on their smartphone as well. So they measured their stressful life events and they measured the amount of laughter they had in a day. So they found that those who had more laughter in their day, it attenuated the effect of the stress and those stressful events. So they found this correlation between those two things. So they thought, you know, obviously, and the intensity of laughter wasn't found to have a significant effect, by the way. But they said, you know, maybe there is something here in terms of what you were saying, in terms of laughter and making you able to deal with more these stressful daily events that happen in people's lives. Okay, so that's not conclusive. No, that's, no. That's not hard. Again, there was, there was only one study that I was kind of able to find. Okay. When we talked about doing this episode months ago, the main thing I would say that came to my mind was laughter yoga mm -hmm. because I don't know, after goat yoga, what's funnier than laughter yoga, you know? Actually, goat yoga is soothing, but it's funny to watch from outwardly. Yeah, laughter yoga is that one thing when you think about or when I think about is laughter really the best medicine? You know, there's got to be people out there who are like, well, if it wasn't, why would people well, be doing yeah. laughter yoga? Why has that become more and more popular over the last few decades? So, yeah, laughter yoga is an interesting thing. I actually didn't know about it until you asked me about what? it a couple of months. I honestly did not until you asked this me about it a couple of months ago. You know where I read about it? Now, so now we're going back to the 90s because my dad had a National Geographic subscription. Oh, yes. My as dad most did. dads yes, did. Yes, yes. yes. If your dad is brown-skinned, <laughs> yes, they had probably to. had the subscription. But yes. Rather than traveling to other places in the world, <laughs> he would only travel to Pakistan, but he got to 
feeling of what the world was through National Geographic. Anyway, so that is that's got to be early mid nineties, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that's when I read about this laughter oh, well, yoga, and it was in India. It, that's very interesting because that's when it started. It started in around the first person who did it was a family physician actually named Madden Kataria who popularized it around 1996 or so. And Kateria wrote a book about his experience. It's a book uh, from 2002 called Laugh for No Reason. And so again, for those of you like me who are unfamiliar with this laughter yoga, it's based on this theory, which is just a theory. I didn't really find a lot of supporting evidence for it in the literature. It's called the motion creates emotion theory. So that basically says that the body doesn't actually know the difference between intentionally laughing and instinctively laughing, right? So it doesn't know the difference between a fake laugh. Meaning or- whatever benefits your body could get, it'll get it whether there's actually something funny yeah. happening, making you laugh or you fake right. it. Right. Wow. So, and this hasn't been shown yet, but the idea would be that release of endogenous opioids that we saw, right? Yeah. That they would say, oh, it should be the same whether it's simulated laughter or real laughter, okay? That has not been proven. I could not find any studies for that. If there are, people let me know. But that's the idea anyway. So then the laughter yoga is basically people getting together and doing this laughing in these groups and 30 minutes plus, and but it's simulated laughing. And so, of course, sometimes that simulated laughing will induce real laughing, right? That that could happen. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Because you're wondering, what am I doing here? Yeah, exactly. How did, I end yeah, up, yeah. how did my life end up in this situation? I, I, mean, I always thought that's what it did. I thought it was like a bunch of people laughing would just make you laugh if yeah. you're, no, if you're laughing. Uh, and, and possibly. So, so, yeah, that's basically what it is. And so, it's interesting when you look at some of the evidence for it. There's not a ton of of studies on it. There was one that looked at laughter yoga, comparing it to group exercise in a head-to-head trial. And this is specifically in elderly women looking at depressive symptoms, okay? So one group got the laughter yoga, one group just got exercise. And there was actually no difference between the groups. So what does that mean? But both of them improved with regards to depressive symptoms. So that means exercise is good for depressive symptoms in elderly women, but laughter yoga it was about the same. There are some kind of technicalities in this. Like it's a bit of a long story with regards to how these types of trials work, but there are, if you're trying to show that there's no difference between two groups, you have to specify that at the beginning of the comparison, not after you've analyzed the results. And I don't think they really did that, but all this to say, there seemed to be no difference between that and exercise. So you could say, well, maybe let's just do exercise then. But what if there are people who can't do exercise because they're immobile in a wheelchair, for example, or, you know, so they can't get the same benefits of doing this aerobic exercise. So maybe the laughter yoga might be helpful for them, right? So that's that's mm-hmm. one example. And then, of course, there's a bunch of what we call systematic reviews. And remember, systematic reviews look at all the available evidence and then they grade the quality of the evidence based on that. So there's several, but the best one that I could find was in a journal called Social Science and Medicine, which is quite a good journal. And they looked at all these trials looking at laughter yoga. And their conclusions were very interesting. They found that the science actually supported more the simulated laughter, as in laughter yoga interventions, as opposed to spontaneous or humorous laughter interventions. So no. for what for whatever reason, and maybe And you said that's a good journal. You said that's, that's right. a good journal. So, so, so that's pretty good. But there's a couple of things for that. So that that could be true, but it could just be that there's more trials that are better run that looked Mm. at the simulated laughter as opposed to real genuine laughter. And they also found that laughter-inducing therapies can improve depression. But their big caveat, which we have to remember, is the overall quality of the studies was low and they had a very high risk of bias. So remember we talked about this before in other episodes. A study is a high risk of bias if they don't blind the participants again. We don't mean physically blind them, but we don't mean you, know, you don't know which intervention you're getting. Now obviously if you're comparing like laughter yoga versus exercise, you know which one you got because you participated in it. Sure. But the person doing the evaluations or the person evaluating the depressive symptoms for example should not know which one they're in. And there's other there's many other ways to minimize bias which were not done in a lot of these. So the studies are relatively poor quality, but 
there is some suggestion that laughter yoga may help, especially for depressive symptoms, but definitely more studies need to be done on the topic. So I was a bit surprised by that, but I, I think I think the real take-home point is we need a bit more info. Okay. Yeah, you're uh, you know, as people who listen to this podcast would know, you're uh, you're pretty hung up on this whole evidence thing. But basically, everything points to strong possibilities that there is uh, there is good in laughter, right? If it's not conclusive, it's it's looking good. And I know from my own experience, you know, there are comedy shows and and as a comedian, especially when you're in clubs, it's kind of what you live for. Somebody coming to you after the show and saying, "I really needed that. Mm-hmm, I've mm-hmm, had a mm-hmm, horrible week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've had a horrible month. And, you know, some, some one person said I just got divorced this week and this was mm-hmm. my girlfriend's brought me out to this and this was so needed and thank you so mm-hmm. much and you feel great. You're doing yeah, it. Absolutely. So, like the laughter yoga, I always think about like after you do that yoga class, how are you not going to walk away with a smile on your face, just feeling good? Yeah, it might be temporary, but you got to feel good. So, then the last, and I kind of know the answer to this, and this is a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of a shocker. I've recently found out there's a couple ways which laughter can be bad for you. Mm-hmm. So can you talk about those? I'm very sad to end it on this note. Yeah, it's not necessarily that laughter is bad for you, but it's laughter may not be indicating something good. Because mm-hmm. in neurology, we have seizures, right? Seizures and epilepsy. And you, normally, you know, it's whole body shaking or, or staring spells or things like that. But there's a very rare kind of seizure called a gelastic seizure, okay? And a gelastic seizure is a laughing seizure. And the key is it's what we call mirthless laughing. So it's laughing and there's nothing funny going on. You're just sitting there and laughing. I used to date a girl who would laugh and I would always be like, what are you even, nothing's funny. Is Was that just, was she having seizures or was there, she was nervous? Well, I've seen, so it's very interesting. This is a very rare condition. And so we get a lot of referrals for people to rule out these seizures, make sure they're not having these seizures. And the vast majority do not. And the vast majority is what you're saying. Anxiety, nervousness. Yeah. I'm thinking about something funny, you know, difficulty with social interaction, that type of thing. But these seizures, like I said, they occur for absolutely no reason. And that's what, you know, I, when I talk to some of my patients, I'll be like, you know, one teenage patient I had would be with their friends and just all of a sudden there's nothing funny going on and it would just start to laugh. There's also what are called decristic seizures. Do you know what happens with those? Little no. Quiz? That's crying seizures. So crying, but there's nothing sad going on. You just start crying and you have a facial grimacing of, of crying, sometimes sobbing. And... Both of these types of seizures can be associated with a very specific kind of lesion called a hypothalamic hamartoma. So this is a non-cancerous tumor that arises in the hypothalamus, which is a deep area of the brain. Hypothalamus actually controls a lot of what are called our endocrine functions. So it controls sometimes our sleep-wake cycle, our body temperature regulation. A lot of those kind of basic functions are controlled by the hypothalamus. And uh, puberty and sometimes like that, the onset of puberty, some of the hormones start off in the hypothalamus. And it's interesting. I So I've been practicing pediatric neurology for 15 and a half years or so fully, like after I finished my training. And the first month I started, I saw two patients with hypothalamic hematoma in a row. And I'm like, oh, there you go. I diagnosed them. That was pretty good. And I've never seen another patient since. Oh wow! So it's very rare, and just I just happen to have seen two patients early on in my career, and none since then. So, and the treatment, in case you're wondering, you could try medicine for the treatment of these seizures. They're actually pretty difficult to control, and sometimes they need surgery to try and remove that hypothalamic hematoma. But again, there's risks to that, so mm. we try sometimes different techniques to kind of get rid of that. There's another way that laughter can be bad, or laughter has been bad in my experience. It's very rare, but sometimes you're doing a audio or videotaping of a comedy show and somebody has a ridiculous laugh. I don't know if you've ever been in a room where somebody has a laugh like that. We had to ask, and I mean, I wasn't part of that, but we were doing a taping. My The show that I work with was doing a live comedy taping and we had to have the uh, producer of the show go and ask somebody to leave. Now, it was done very politely. It was like, I hope you understand your laugh is just, it's extremely sort of loud and, and it's its your own and it's a beautiful laugh. It was not. It was a, ah, ah, 
it was insane. And when you're doing a comedy taping, which is audio only, it's awful. And a couple of people have theorized that that is somebody who just is desperate for attention. That's not normal, how loud that laugh is. Be that as it may, we had to give that person a credit to come back to the bar anytime. Oh, no, it was for a comedy festival. We were part of a comedy festival. You can go to any other comedy festivals. Here's some tickets, free tickets to go to other shows. You just can't be here right now. Wow. So that's another way that laughter can be bad when we're recording and your laugh is god awful, which you can't even control. You know, in most cases, you can't control what your laugh sounds like. I've had that conversation with my kids sometimes where I'm like, that's your laugh. That's the one you're going to go with for the rest of your life. I'd, I'd rethink that. Well, I hope Dr. Asif Doja has not made you uh, hyper-conscious of your laughter or made you uh, disinclined to laugh. No, anymore. you did that because you're gonna, people are going to think, everybody's going to think they have that weird laugh that got, is going to get them kicked out of a comedy club. That was your fault. Well, yeah. yeah, maybe. Maybe. You know, ask a good friend. Ask a good, honest friend if you have a terrible laugh. It's very rare. I said from the beginning, it's very rare. You probably don't. All right. Well, this has been a fun episode. It's been a nice little walk uh, down memory lane. And also, I wanted to explore these ideas about laughter and how beneficial it can be. As you suggested, much more study has to be done in the subject, but it does make people feel good generally. Mm -hmm. huh? I agree. I agree. Anything to plug before we get out of here? Well, if people, you know, outside of laughter, people also enjoy eating and drinking. You may have, mm. may have heard of people I like think that. people do <laughs> eat and drink. That's for sure. Pretty they sure do. Does. And on that note, I have a podcast with my friend Marco Timpano. And we, uh, it's called the podcast uh, Eat and Drink, the podcast. The Eat and Drink podcast? Anyway, they look up Eat and Drink with Marco and Ali. And, uh, you know, we have a good time talking about food. He'll make a cocktail. I'll make a meal. And then I put something in Marco's mouth. It's always food. It's always food. But so, I put, yes. Good, yeah. good to hear. And remember to follow us on social media. With Dr. V Comedian, we're on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. We're just, we're everywhere. Uh, give us some feedback. Tell us what you want to hear on the show. Rate and review us on Spotify, on iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And then remember that I... I'm a doctor, but I'm not your specific doctor. So medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only. They're not to be considered medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Thank you all for listening. Thank you. See ya. See ya.